0: Welcome to Commune, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that bring us together and help us live healthy and purpose filled lives. In addition to being a podcast, Commune is also an online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. Check it out at onecommune.com. So here at Commune, we're all about helping you live your best and healthiest life, cheering you on as you work towards your highest potential. We've done episodes on the power of food to impact your overall health and well-being, the power of community, the power of body movement and of yoga. We've offered tools for self-reflection, growth, healing, and more. We've shared all of these beautiful, valuable, actionable practices with you. But as we're all looking forward into 2019 and beyond with big goals and dreams, I don't know about you, but kicking bad habits and introducing new, healthier ones are at the top of my list. We know what we should be doing and about the practices we'd like to start doing. But what are we up against when it comes to actually doing the thing? What is actually going on inside our brains? What do habits, good and bad, look like? And what could be helpful for us to know about our physiology when it comes to achieving our highest potential? Well, we couldn't exactly look into people's heads and place electrodes on their brains to see what the human experience actually looks like, so we found the one guy who actually does just that. Meet Moran Cerf, a neuroscientist and business professor at the Kellogg School of Management and the Neuroscience Program at Northwestern University. Before dedicating his life to hacking the human brain, he spent years as an actual hacker, getting hired to break into high-level banks to test their security systems, today, He's on the board of several neurotech companies and is the co-founder of ThinkAlike and BQ, an organization that utilizes neuroscience for the betterment of society. In his work, Professor Cerf studies patients as they are undergoing brain surgery and records the activity of individual nerve cells using electrodes implanted in their brain, a groundbreaking way to learn about the human psyche by observing the brain directly from within. Sounds like something right out of the movies. Well, He's also the Alfred P. Sloan Professor at the American Film Institute, AFI, where he teaches an annual screenwriting class on science in films. He's consulted on various movies and TV shows like CBS's Bull and Limitless and USA Network's Falling Water. But today, we're not talking make-believe. We're talking about the actual science of what really goes on inside our brains and how we can use that knowledge to further understand the human condition and maybe get a little help kicking our bad habits in the process. I'm Jeff Krasno and welcome to Commune.
1: With animals, you can open the brain of a rat or a mouse and stick electrodes directly next to those cells and eavesdrop on their activity directly. In humans, it's really hard to do just that. So what we often do is we use tools that uh, image the brain from the outside. So machines like fMRI or EEG are machines that inject magnetic fields through your brain or listen to the residue of those cells on the outside of your brain and give you some reading of what's going on inside. That That's kind of how neuroscientists generally work. I'm part of a very small community of neuroscientists who have a unique way of studying the brain where we actually look at the brains of humans from the inside. So this is something that you often do only with animals. We work with patients who undergo brain surgery for clinical purposes. And this surgery requires a surgeon to open their brain and stick electrodes deep inside their head in order to understand what's the source of their problem. And then keep those electrodes there for a few days until manifestation of the problem is clear and you can figure out what's the problem. And what I do as a researcher, I piggyback of the sur- on the surgery and I tell the patient, you know, you're going to be here anyhow. Someone's going to open your brain and put electrodes inside your head and you're going to be awake all of the time. Do you mind letting me ask you questions about your thoughts and feelings and dreams and emotions and everything that I can figure out about your brain while I listen to those cells in your brain as they speak.
0: And people say yes to you because you're so charming?
1: I think that the majority of the patients are happy to do that for, A, the benefit of science, B, because they're extremely bored, so they sit there for two weeks and they can't really do much because they can't really move out of bed. So they're in a way, in in a situation where they are excited about doing something that will help science and also entertain them and give them uh, some information about how their brain works and so on. So I think that uh, we have a very high turnout of patients who say, yes, please do that with me. Hmm.
0: And so either through measuring through fMRI or EEG or as you suggest, the very, very rare way that you have access through putting electrodes in the brain, you can gather data on how the brain reacts, what lights up the brain essentially.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: What I'm really interested in is how you are able to essentially predict and map engagement and people's interest by doing that. So you can see, in some ways, what people are engaging with just by mapping the electrochemical reaction in their brain. Is that right?
1: Yes, exactly. So, so engagement is a, a loaded word in English. It means so many things for so many people that it's kind of hard to even look at a dictionary and figure out what it means. But broadly speaking, when you're engaged with something, it feels like this is the most important thing right now. Time passes by fast. Your emotions are elevated. You might remember more what's happening. A lot of good things happen when you're engaged. And at the same time, no one could find a single part of the brain that is always active when you're engaged with something and is silent otherwise. So this was a kind of puzzle for neuroscientists for a while. How come it's very clear, like behaviorally? that someone is engaged with something. They're they're very excited when their sports team is playing or they're very uh, happy when their favorite politician is speaking. But somehow there's no neural correlate for that. So what we said is, you know what? Forget about finding this kind of neural correlate that's single place in the brain. Let's look at one feature of engagement and use that. And the feature we worked on is the fact that when you're engaged, the content seems to take over your brain. And if it's really good content, it does the same thing to every person who watches it. So you, me, your wife, your daughters, every person who watches the, say, a fantastic speaker or the amazing musician seem to be under their spell. And if that's the case, then it means that somehow all of their brains would look very similar. So when something very interesting is happening... The brain is totally under the spell of that thing. When it's really boring, everyone is very different. Like you might think about your uh, chores, and your wife might think about like, things that she needs to do uh, tomorrow uh, at school, and maybe your daughters would think about like a joke they heard. That everyone's brains can look very different. So what we said is, let's look at the similarity between brains when they watch the same content. And by how similar they are, we'll know how good the content is. If they're very similar, it means that the content is fantastic, very engaging. And if they're very different, it's not engaging. So we just measure similarity between brains and estimate the things that their brain are experiencing.
0: So I was at a concert, I remember a few years ago, and this notion really stuck with me, where there was a piano player as part of a group, and I was enjoying the concert in, in the audience and I was with a drummer who's also very, very talented. And he taps me on the shoulder and whispers in my ear. um, And he's talking about the piano player. And he's like, that guy, Neil, he makes everyone feel the same. And he was right. And, you know, it was actually sort of an aha moment. Now, I don't have any science with it, but I could tell by just looking around um, that people were having a moment of collective joy or a collective enthrallment. And it sounds like you actually is more than anecdotal, it's actually data-driven, that that's actually true. And, you know, by extension, he's a great artist, or he's what he's doing is actually producing content that makes everyone feel the same, or essentially has the same effect on everyone's brain.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Sort of by examining that content, you could then look forward of like, okay, well, we know now how everyone's brain is reacting, so now we can manufacture content that can have the same desired effect.
1: That's exactly right. And I think that what is magical about this, in a way, is that in my mind, this is what makes artists uh, remarkable. It is their ability to somehow, even though they never met you, to be able to tap into your brain and figure out who you are in a really large scale. So, you know, musicians like, uh, let's say, composers like Mozart, somehow he could sit in his little room and write something in his notebook that would make all the brains of people hundreds of years later look the same. So genius is being able to penetrate the brains of millions of people in the same way, even though you don't know them. They're very different, men, women, old, young, uh, different races. Different experiences, different desires. Somehow, if you're a fantastic composer, if you're a fantastic filmmaker, if you're a fantastic drummer, you're able to penetrate the brains of all of those people and make them all look the same. This is what genius is about. Right.
0: I guess you might say by extension make them care. Yeah. We're both probably hyper aware of like some of the most salient issues of our time. Existential issues, you know, like the environment and global warming, for example. But it's very hard to make people care about that. Can you help to make people care because you understand what creates collective engagement?
1: So in a way there's there there are some things that I can do or that we can do better now because we understand engagement. And that is, for example, uh, we can rank different messages and see which one works best. So if you're the government and you're trying to promote different behavior, let's say you want to make people care more about climate change, and you bring me, a scientist, 10 different options for a messaging campaign that will change people's behavior, I can look at which one makes more brains look alike and which ones make less friends look alike, they kind of rank them and tell you this one would work better than this one. So that's one way. This doesn't help you create the content, but this helps you know which of the possibilities is the best one. And that's relevant for marketing campaigns, for politicians who are about to give a speech, for uh, teachers who are thinking of how to teach and what's going to be the best way to educate and so on. There's another uh, even more impressive level that we sometimes are trying to get at, which is... When we say, have people look at uh, content that we clearly see is engaging, we also try to tweak things and see what changes engagement, what makes it go higher or lower. And then we say, okay, it seems that uh, putting a joke in the uh, 17th second actually increases the engagement in this moment, but decreases engagement in the 40 seconds later. So even though it's momentarily increasing it, you should not put it there. Uh, maybe using this font will change the engagement, but using that font will do something that is even more powerful. So we kind of now starting to play with small tweaks to content and checking how they affect multiple brands to start learning something about the code of what works what doesn't work.
0: I also want to talk about habits because this show is very much geared around helping people live healthy and, and purposeful lives. And a lot of this is about giving people actionable information so they can develop good habits like, you know, eating well or doing yoga or, or meditating. So can we actually train the brain into good habits?
1: So absolutely. Now, so The question is how. And the how is a little bit different per person, but there's some guidelines that uh, repeatedly work. So broadly speaking, what habits are, uh, are a set of operations that the brain said, we do them so routinely that we don't want to think about them anymore. And that's a very, very good thing to have. Because if we had to think about everything we do, we would waste a lot of resources making a lot of choices that are not important. When you're a baby, you learn to walk, Uh, at first every step requires thinking you have to kind of think where you move your feet how you move your leg where you put the weight and so on and it takes a lot of energy it's effectively all the thing you can do when you're walking is think about walking if you had to do that all the time it would be very hard to do other things so the brain created this idea where after you do something routinely and the brain figures out that you need to do that for most of your life in the same way it just moves it to a different part of the brain buried deep inside, right at the center of your brain, and there it sits and it does it without you thinking anymore. And it leaves room for you to think about other things. So that's kind of the idea of habits. Now, the unfortunate aspect is that sometimes things go into this vault in the back that we want out. And it's very hard to get them out because the brain made an effort to put there and give us no access. That's why it's sometimes hard to break habits. But there are still ways to do it. Uh, The easiest kind of High-level take-home message is that it's easier to break habits by replacing them. So instead of just saying, okay, I want to wake up every day uh, early, uh, but it's kind of uh, not happening because my brain is geared towards not uh, waking up early on itself, if you start creating routines that make you change habits, they will become habits too, replacing the other ones. So it's not enough to just say, I'm going to stop. So if you're biting your nails uh, and you want to stop, it's one thing to try to stop, but it's easier to actually create some kind of replacement habit. That's why, unfortunately, a lot of times when people stop one bad thing, they stop another bad thing. Because if you don't put anything inside, instead, the brain just picks something that's easy and puts it instead. So that's kind of one practical, kind of high-level way of talking about habits. Uh, There are all kinds of... uh, small ways that have shown to work. Breaking habits as a big goal is hard, but uh, changing small things is easier. So if you say next year I'm gonna exercise, it's a good kind of thing to say, it's very, very hard to operationalize that. But if you say Monday every week at 2 p.m., I'm going to meet my friend and exercise, you will effectively exercise a lot more next year but you just kind of turned a big idea into a personable action. So kind of small tasks are better than big ideas in that sense for the brain.
0: There's probably an element of uh, social accountability, but also, you know, I mean, I've read statistics of like, okay, if the majority of the people that you know are, let's say, overweight, there's a much greater probability that you're going to be overweight yourself. Is that a function of sociocultural condition, or is, that, is there a neuroscience component of behavior and human conditioning? So,
1: so generally, you're totally right. There, there are a lot of studies in the last couple of years on what we call networks that show that uh, who you're around, uh, not just who you're around directly, but who they're around, even two degrees from you, affects your life a lot. So if you're next to people that are overweight, you will actually increase your weight. If uh, It's too even if like, the, the people that are not directly next to you but people that are next to them are overweight. It's true for positive and negative things. Uh, if you want to change behaviors, one of the easiest ways to do that is to surround yourself by people that exhibit the behavior you want to have. So if you want to lose weight, One of the easiest ways to kind of make a change is to surround yourself with people who eat healthy. You will have a hard time not doing that, A, because you're going to have a lot more healthy food around you. You're going to have a a tough time changing a lot of people, so you will actually uh, conform to their standards. Uh, You will also see uh, behaviors that your brain will replicate and mimic a mirror, basically, without you knowing why. So one of the easiest ways to uh, take on habits or, or behaviors that you want is to surround yourself with people who exhibit them. I I wanted to be funnier. I thought it's like important to be a, a funny teacher in my class. I surrounded myself with comedians. I just started to hang out with comedians. And even though at no point did they, they actually sit me, me down and say, "Mohan, we're going to teach you how to be a comedian. We're going to teach you how to copy jokes. It somehow rubbed onto me. I started seeing how they think about things, how their timing works, how they talk to each other. And suddenly things became easier in my mind without at any point actually articulating the language of being funny. I never learned the rules, or I don't even know if I can articulate them right now, but my brain embraced that. So that's one of the easiest ways to do that, to just be next to people that are exhibiting the, the behaviors you want.
0: Mm, interesting. So you personally have done a lot of different things in your life. Um, you know, you've been, uh, I think your, your history as a hacker has been well documented on YouTube. And... Obviously, you're a speaker and have contributed a lot to to neuroscience. I'm curious, if you could make one big impact on the human condition, what would that be?
1: Those are all tough questions. I I feel that uh, I want my contribution to be translating science in a tangible way to the masses. So I feel that uh, too many of my friends... Neuroscientists are doing fantastic work that no one but themselves knows about. It's published in a professional journal, and they read it, and maybe their mothers read it too, but that's about it. And I feel that's a shame. And I think that's kind of what I try to do is take those results and speak about them in podcasts, on TV. Find whatever medium I can to communicate that to the bigger kind of world. And that's, I think, what is important for me right now.
0: Right. Well, it seems like no one is more qualified than yourself <laughs> to achieve you. your own goal.
1: <laughs> I hope so. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Well, this is fascinating. Thank you so much for uh, for your time and for your absolutely fascinating work.
1: Thank you so much. More than happy.
0: There is clearly still much to learn about the human psyche, but Professor Moran Cerf's work has put our theories on the power of community to the test. He says one of the easiest ways to take on habits or behaviors that you want is to surround yourself with people who exhibit them. The intricate functions of our brain work in our favor as well as against us, but the best part about the human brain, it's malleable to our will. We just need to make the choice to make the change. Thanks for listening to the Commune Podcast. I'm Jeff Krasno, and we'll see you next week.